right, amen. Why don't you grab your Bibles and uh, go to Lamentations chapter 1. We're going to be in Lamentations 1 and 2 this morning. I know this morning as you rolled out of bed, you're like, you know what I really could go for is a message out of the book of Lamentations. <laughs> um, yeah, I get it. Um, some of you haven't been here in the last two weeks and are already worried about the Kleenex in the aisle. Um, I will let you know. Again, if you weren't here, just first of all, a lot of that came as a result of a lot of your own emails to us after this first uh, message in the series two weeks ago. And so we put out the t- issues, and today it's our effort at following some sort of health code, because last week I said you could use a neighbor's sleeve, and evidently some of you did. So now we have Kleenex for you, so be hygienic, all right? All right. Um, yeah. So we, we get into the, um, Lamentations. I want to make sure that I transition well. Because what we have talked about in the last two weeks with lament is different than what we are going to talk about through the book of Lamentations. Because there's a different context, a different feel, a different approach, and yet the same word. It's still lament. So I want to make sure that I'm careful to make the transition for you so that you don't hear something that I'm not saying. So it's going to be in order to do that. What I want to do is kind of give you a little background of Lamentations, okay? So we believe the book of Lamentations is written by Jeremiah. He's not named in the book, but if you were to read the book of Jeremiah and then the book of Lamentations, you would find a lot of similarity in the style of writing, in the verbiage that's used, his language, his grammar, all those things. So I believe that this is the prophet Jeremiah. Um, the book is written in a very specific way. Uh, the first two chapters, which we're going to be in together this morning, First two chapters are are written in a poetic and artistic way to describe total loss, complete loss. It's written as an acrostic. So many of you, if you look at your Bibles, many of you, before verse 1, you've got this little squiggly thing, and then it says Aleph, and then before 2, you've got a little, little looks like you're playing hangman, you've got that little thing, and it says Beth. So so those are actually the, the Hebrew alphabet. And so Lamentations 1 and 2 are written... Um, as an acrostic. Each verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So there's 22 verses in chapter 1 and 22 verses in chapter 2. And, and we'll talk more about 3, 4, and 5 in the next couple of weeks. But as this acrostic is, is being written, the idea, the, it's kind of a subliminal way to communicate that this is totality. This is completion. This is, from Jeremiah's perspective, this is as bad as it gets. Um, and, and in, in the, the orderliness of the acrostic, there's a certain disorder that occurs, which is why this morning I'm not going to start in verse 1 and work my way through verse 22, and then 1 to 22. I, I'm going to kind of lead us through and hit a couple of spots throughout. It's, it's almost written like a proverb where verse to verse do, do, doesn't build. It's just individual statements. Because I, even in the orderliness of, the, of the, the, the acrostic, there is a little bit of disorder, even though Jeremiah is writing and saying, I want you to understand, this is the A disease of, of, of destruction. This is complete and totality. But in it, there's some, I don't know, circularness. There's some repetitiveness. Because, so, so let's be honest, we talked about this in the last couple of weeks. Suffering isn't linear. It's not this neat 
orderly little thing that happens. It's like, well, this hurt happened, and so boom, 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 all better. Suffering isn't linear. It is repetitive. The, the pain and the hurt that we feel in our hearts and our souls is repetitive. It's, it's, it can be circular at times. Let me, let me give you a picture of it. If you have at home a vase, it's really, really, really expensive, and one of those things that you have cherished your entire life as a family. Actually, if it's really, really expensive and you've cherished it your entire life as a family, it's not a vase, it's a vase. So if you have a vase at home, and somebody knocks it off the shelf and it hits the floor and breaks into pieces, you gather the pieces up, you put them on the table, and you're like, all right, I've got to figure this out. You pick up one piece, put it together. Now, if it's a vase, you don't care. You don't try to put it back together. If it's a vase, you're trying to put it back together. One piece, now that piece doesn't fit. You put that one down, you handle another piece. And, and throughout time, as you are rebuilding the vase, what you continue to do is pick up the, and put the same piece up and down, up and down. That's a picture of our suffering and our hurt in this broken world. We keep holding up the same pieces, trying to figure out where in the world they fit. Because we've seen the completed picture. That's the tension. So let me give you the definition of lament that we've been using. The de- lament is the honest cry of the child of God who is living in the tension of pain and the promise of God. And, and, and so the, the vase, as it would be, that's the picture of the promise of God. We know what that thing is supposed to look like. We know what it's like in its full beauty. We know when, when, when the promise of God comes to full fruition, there's no more tears, there's no more weeping. Everything is made new. Everything is made right. But in the meantime, we live in the tension because we live in the brokenness. And so as we handle the pieces of the, the broken vase, we continue to hold, like, it's got to fit in here somehow. And I think that's an accurate description of what we wrestle with. That's the tension. Remember we talked about it, and and I want to make sure I hit this because I don't feel like I explained this well enough the last two weeks. There has to be an honesty about the pain, the sadness, and the hurt that you are feeling when you talk to God. Again, not a feigned, everything's okay, not using your fancy Bible language, thee, thou, whithersoever. It's the gut-wrenching honesty that comes from your heart, because we need to lament in order for us to truly have a relationship that is close with God. Let me explain it this way, okay? If somebody hasn't seen you in all of your ugliness, are they really that close to you? Okay, I thank God that this is not my own personal story. It is not the story of a pastor that works at Uniontown Bible Church. However, there was a pastor who I was very close to and I knew very well, who was standing up in a wedding, He's got the groom, the bride, they're holding hands, they've exchanged vows, they've given each other rings, all their party is lined up perfectly, there's 100, 125 people sitting there, all smiles, the mom of the bride is just like, this is the greatest thing ever for my daughter. And he begins to do his challenge to them, says, I just want to let you know, and I don't know their names, I'll just say it's Jack and Jill. And he says, Jack, would you look across from you right now, look across, you see Jill, isn't she beautiful? Isn't she gorgeous? Her hair is done, the dress is perfect, the makeup has been done for hours, her nails have all those fancy things. Do you see how beautiful she is? Jack, I need to tell you something. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, that's not what you're going to see. The mother of the bride's like, I'll kill him! (laughs) Um, But if somebody hasn't seen your real self, your true ugliness, Do they really know you? 
The beauty in the covenant of marriage is, listen, you have seen all of my crazy, and you're not going anywhere. You have covenanted to stay regardless of how crazy it gets, how ugly it gets. In these moments of hurt and pain, we need to be vulnerable with our heart as we cry out to God. Ah, I feel disrespectful when I do that. You shouldn't. This is an opportunity for you to be vulnerable with God and to share with your heart what exactly it is that's going on. God, this hurts. And you know what? You're the only one that can do something about it. Will you? But if you choose to hold that in, are you really close to him? And can he really be close to you? So lament is what we need in order to build that nearness, that close relationship with God. But lament is also something that we need when we've created a distance with God. There's got to be some level of honesty about where the suffering and pain comes from. And, and, and look, look at verse 5, and, and don't, don't jump to a conclusion. Let me, let me guide you through this, okay? But chapter 1, verse 5, it says, the, the, because, uh, um, let me go back here, the Lord has made her to suffer because of her many transgressions. So that the reason that the people of, of, that Jeremiah is speaking of, the reason the people of Jerusalem are going through such difficulty is because of their own sin, their own transgressions. This is a very different suffering than what Job went through. This is a very different suffering than what we've been talking about for the last two weeks. But it, it's important for us to wrestle with it. It's part of the tension we live in every day. I mean, there's coming a day when you and I are not going to wrestle with our sinful tendencies anymore. But that day isn't today. And because that day isn't today, we allow our anger to determine how we react. Our pride tells us that we couldn't possibly do anything wrong. In our indulgences, we allow ourselves to run face first into things to satisfy our our immediate needs with a lack of self-control. We lie, we cheat, we're selfish. We, we let comfort become what is our, our greatest good. Now, I, in the last two weeks I've said this, so hopefully that context helps, but I'll say it really specifically here. I am not in any way, shape, or form suggesting that, that every negative experience in your life, every hurt in your life is connected to a specific sin in your life. That is not what I'm saying. But sometimes bad choices are actually the problem. And what God does in his love is he allows the consequences of your sinful actions to bear their ugly fruit in your life. That's, that's Hebrews uh, chapter 12 when it says the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. Now, we have to be careful because I believe the church in its history has over-applied the situation in Lamentations and, and been like, oh, but we ended up like Job's friends. Oh, 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 something's bad in your life. You've got this hurt. You've lost all of these things. You must have done something terrible because that's the way God acts. No, God was very clear that's not the way he was acting in Job's life. So we can end up like Job's friends. We can end up like the disciples when they saw the man born blind and said, Jesus, who sinned? Was it him or, or was it his parents? Because obviously somebody sinned for him to have, have a handicap like that. And it's like, no, that's, that's not actually true. So we need to be careful about over-applying, but we also need to engage the process to evaluate why we might be experiencing some of the things we're experiencing. So, some of the background of the book of Lamentations, some of the history. There was no other nation, and to this day there exists no nation that has ever been as favored as the people of Israel were in the Old Testament. They're in a, a situation of slavery. God shows up, delivers them out of Egypt. He takes them out of Egypt and leads them across the Red Sea on dry ground. He, he guides them through the wilderness for 40 years. Their clothes don't run out. Their shoes don't wear thin. 
He provides food for them. Then you get to the book of Joshua. And Joshua, under Joshua's leadership, he leads the people of Israel into Canaan and they conquer the nations of Canaan. The capital city of the children of Israel, Jerusalem itself, is this magnificent city that is supremely blessed by God. And in it sits this temple, in particular, in the temple, the Holy of Holies, which was the very dwelling place of God himself. No other nation had ever experienced the favor of God like that. However, after David and Solomon were done reigning, the nation was split into two kingdoms, north and south. And the northern kingdom, called Israel, continued to ignore warnings of prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, who was calling them to repentance, calling them to turn their back on their sin and come back to God. And so they refused to hear any of the prophets up to the place of 722 BC when Assyria came in and conquered them. And that, in itself, should have been a a warning to the southern kingdom, Judah, but it wasn't. So now the southern kingdom of Judah followed the same path of spiritual uh, immorality, uh, rebellion, idolatry, um, corruption in its practices, injustice in the way it treated the most needy people. And during their running from God, a prophet named Jeremiah comes on the scene. And Jeremiah, you think you have a dead-end job? Jeremiah had the worst job ever. Jeremiah was told at the beginning of his ministry, I want you to go speak to my people, the children of Judah, the people of Judah. I want you to preach the repentance. I want you to call them to turn their back on their sin and run back to God. And not a single one of them was going to return. No one is going to listen to you, Jeremiah. Have a great day at work. For 40 years. (laughs) They ignored the warnings of God through Jeremiah. And Babylon, the up-and-coming superpower, came on the scene and surrounded the capital city of Judah, Jerusalem. And it laid siege to it for three years. And in that three-year time, many starved to death because there was no food or water coming in or going out. They couldn't get basic provisions. Parents saw their children die. The army of Babylon, which we'll talk about more specifically in a few weeks, was particularly brutal. They finally breached the wall around Jerusalem and they tore down the walls. They tore down all of the homes. They tore down the temple. They, they burnt everything they could find. And when you went back to look at Jerusalem, there was barely a stone standing on top of another stone. The destruction of Jerusalem was complete. It was total. And then Babylon did what Babylon does. They took the people, particularly the young people, and carried them out of Jerusalem and returned them to Babylon. Because if you take a group of people out of their homeland and replant them in somebody else's homeland, it it, it unnerves them enough where it's a little bit difficult to rise up in rebellion. Um, If you you think uh, Daniel, the book of Daniel, you read the beginning of the book of Daniel, talks about how Nebuchadnezzar uh, besieged Jerusalem, and then at the end of it, he carried away all the young men and women back to Babylon. That was Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's the story. At the end of 2 Kings, uh, chapters 24, 25 specifically, you get the story of the 
the fall of Jerusalem. You can read the end of Jeremiah and see the story of the, the fall of Jerusalem. These things were, were horrible. And, 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 and what Babylon did was they decided to leave a few of the more poor, more financially destitute people behind so, and gave them sections of the land where they could try to eke out some level of survival among the ruins. But how despondent were they? Put yourself in their shoes. You just lost everything. Uh, Many parents saw their children starve to death. Many parents watched their older children be taken away into slavery and they would never be seen again. You have this regime, this superpower in Babylon that was just violent from the very beginning in order to bring intimidation to people so they wouldn't rise up. And worse than all of that is, is that the, the place that they looked at as their hope, particularly the, 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 the temple itself in Jerusalem, was the place that, that God would be present with them. This was God's claim to be for them, was in the temple. That was all of that message. That was all being taught to them. And yet in that moment that Babylon came in, they destroyed the temple and carried away all of the instruments used for worship. And when it's all said and done, you kind of get in your mind the picture of a war scene, a battle scene in one of your, 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 your favorite movies where the battle is over and it's just decimated. And, and all you see is the smoke wafting over the dead bodies Tradition has it that uh, Jeremiah retreated outside the city after this. He was allowed to stay. Uh, you can see that in the book of Jeremiah, but he was allowed to stay. He retreated outside of Jerusalem to the northwest side of the city where he went into this rocky structure. Today, it's called Jeremiah's Grotto. As Jeremiah went in, tradition has it that he sat in that grotto where he could look over the ruins of Jerusalem And he wrote the book of Lamentations. And he begins the book of Lamentations. Look with me. Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1. Ninety percent of the Bible versions that are in English start with the same word in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1. And that word is how. We know this book to be called Lamentations. That's how we memorized it as a kid growing up, all the books of the Bibles, right? Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, okay? The Hebrews know this book by the name of Echa. Echa. Which means how. It's quite the question, isn't it? To be looking at the absolute ruin of all the hope you would ever have. The only question you can ask is, how? I mean, look, look at some of the things Jeremiah's looking at. We're going we're gonna to blow through a number of scriptures, so just get your fingers ready. You've got to go four or five pages a few times here, okay? So Lamentations 1, verse 2. As Jeremiah is considering what happened in Jerusalem, he considers the fact that they have been betrayed by their closest of allies. He says, there's no one to offer her comfort, not one from all of her lovers. All of her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Verse 7. 
When her people fell into the adversary's hands, she had no one to help. The adversaries looked at her, laughing over her downfall. Jeremiah is considering the fact that his people were exiled. Verse 5, her children have gone away as captives before the adversary. And again in verse 8, uh, sorry, verse 18. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. Chapter 2, verse 1, Jeremiah is concerned with the fact that we lost our temple. Does the Lord, how the Lord has overshadowed daughter Zion with his anger. Chapter 2, verse 1. He's thrown down Israel's glory from heaven to earth. He did not acknowledge his footstool in the day of his anger. Verse 7 of chapter 2. The Lord's rejected his altar, repudiated his sanctuary. He's handled Sorry, he's handed the walls of her palaces over to the enemy. They've raised a shout in the house of the Lord as on the day of an appointed festival. What Jeremiah is saying is, as I look out over where the temple was, not only did they tear it down, not only did they take all of the instruments of worship away, not only did they wipe the entire thing out, but they are standing in the middle of the temple, the place that was dedicated for, for the worship of God himself, and they're doing their own touchdown dance right there. I'm not sure if this is necessarily a a good or a bad thing, but chapter 2, verse 9, it says that all the leaders are gone. Zion's gates have fallen to the ground. He's destroyed and shattered the bars on her gates. Her king and her leaders live among the nations. It means they've been carried off. Instruction is no more. Even her prophets receive no vision from the Lord. The reason I ask if that's a good or a bad thing is because earlier it has said, no, these prophets, they were receiving direct messages from God, and he was like, then the prophets were like, yeah, that, that's not going to go over well. Instead, I'll just say this. They were an absolute and total disgrace. As the world looked at them, their shame was out in the open for everyone to see. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. All who pass by scornfully clap their hands at you. They hiss They shake their heads at daughter Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? Now all of your enemies open their mouths against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth saying, we have swallowed her up. This is the day we have waited for. We have lived to see this. Turn turn back to chapter 1, verse 8. Jerusalem has sinned grievously. Therefore, she has become an object of scorn. All who honored her now despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns away. Her uncleanness stains her skirts. She never considered her end. Her downfall was astonishing. You want to talk about shame? And that is an incredibly um, direct, picturesque, and vulgar language that Jeremiah is using there. He's being graphic in his description of the uncleanness. And, I, and I'll spare some of you moms in particular, so you don't have to try to explain this to your kids later. And I'll just say this. Whatever uncleanness was being hidden by the outer garments of clothing is no longer being hidden because it has leaked through. And now everybody sees how unclean you actually are. The whole world looked at Jerusalem and mocked. They'd become the laughing stock of the entire world. Chapter 2, verse 3. 
at how complete the destruction is. Every horn of Israel in his burning anger has been cut off. It's withdrawn in his right hand in the presence of the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything. Chapter 2, verse 5. The Lord is like an enemy. He swallowed up Israel. He swallowed up all its palaces and destroyed its fortified cities. Verse 13 of chapter 2. And what can I... What can I say on your behalf? What can I compare you to, daughter Jerusalem? What can I liken you to so that I may console you, virgin daughter Zion? Your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? What we cannot lose sight of is who brought this destruction on Jerusalem. Well, the Babylonians did, yes. But the Babylonians were simply an instrument in the hand of God. You just got to look at the first nine verses of chapter 2 and see how many times God acts against Jerusalem. Let's just run through it. Look at at verse 1. God has thrown down Israel's glory from heaven to earth. He didn't acknowledge his footstool, the temple, in the day of his anger. Verse 2, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has demolished the fortified cities. He brought them to the ground. He defiled the kingdom and its leaders. Verse 3, he cut off every horn of Israel. He has withdrawn his right hand. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire. Verse 4, he has strung his bow like an enemy. Do you know how many times in the Old Testament it talks about God fighting for his people? Do you know how many times it talks about God? I, I've got you. I, I will be your right hand. I am your refuge. I will fight for you. And in this instant, God strings his bow and his aim is in the exact opposite direction. He's going right at Israel. He has killed everyone who was a delight to his eye. Verse 5 he, the Lord was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He swallowed up its palaces. He destroyed its fortified cities. He's multiplied mourning and lamentation. Verse 7, he has rejected the altar. He has repudiated his sanctuary. He has handed the walls of our palaces over to the enemy. Verse 8, the Lord determined to destroy the walls. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain himself. He made the ramparts of the walls grieve. Verse 9, he has destroyed and shattered the bars on her gates. Is there any question where the judgment came from? Why? Why would God do that? Why, 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 why would he want to go after his people like that? Chapter 1, verse 5, because of Israel's transgressions. But wait, Frank, God, God loves his people, and he does. God loves his people. God has gone above and beyond to prove his love for his people. He loved his people enough to demonstrate that love in in patience and in long-suffering and grace and and in kindness. So so he is is definitely in love with his people. He is also in love with his city, Jerusalem. He he wants to um, uh, preserve the city. He wants to build the city. He wants it to be a a shining light of example among the whole world that they look at. That's where my God lives. He's supposed to love those things. He's supposed to preserve those things. Why would he do this? Because there was something far more important than preserving the city. There's something far more important. And it's his holiness. God's not okay with just a 
visual representation of his glory settling in the temple. He, he wants to see the glory of God. He wants to see the holiness of God in you. So, so what you're seeing happen in Jerusalem that, that leads to the writing of his lamentations and this heartfelt cry out to God is, is divine justice and it's divine love. In, in divine justice, he's bringing about the punishment for sinful rebellion. And in his divine love, he's doing this in order to get people to turn away from their sin. We talked about this weeks ago. In his holiness, God is slow to anger. In his holiness, he is long-suffering. In his holiness, he wants to see all come to repentance. But he's not going to be patient forever. God has provided you countless opportunities to repent and turn back to him. And, and sometimes, sometimes the opportunities that God hands to you, those opportunities actually hurt. There, there's pain and even sorrow involved from the hand of, hand of God. Let me, let me read this. Look, go, go Psalm 51. If you want to see it, Psalm 51, I'm going to start reading in verse 6. I'll read through verse 8. This is the Psalm of David. This is his repentant response after being confronted by Nathan the prophet for calling him out with his sin against Bathsheba. Listen to David in Psalm 51.6. Surely, God, you desire integrity in the inner self. You teach me wisdom deep within. You purify me with hyssop, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. And let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Did you catch that? The bones that God himself crushed. See, sometimes the discipline that God brings into your life is actually his way of pursuing you so you won't be able to run any further. And, and that discipline, that crushing of bones, as David puts it, that's grace. That's a gift. That God, would, that God would take us someplace that we wouldn't go on our own. Because, because, because we hear these things and it makes us uncomfortable to think about God this way. We don't like thinking about God this way. No, but, but God disciplining us, God bringing judgment upon us after he has given us so many warnings and tried to call us back. It's not, it's not grace in the way that we like grace. We, well, man, I love to experience the release and relief of just being able to sit at absolute peace. When we say grace, that's what we think. But in reality, the grace that is spoken about in Scripture is the grace of refinement, the grace of rescue. It's an uncomfortable grace. So, 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 um, I've asked myself this question a lot this week. As I think about this, I read Lamentations 1 and 2, I hear the lament of the soul after everything they've lost, after God has called them back to himself through the prophet Jeremiah, and they rejected everything that Jeremiah was saying. 
And then God stepped in and brought the judgment that he had said he would bring. No surprises. No surprises. Is that scary to me? That's scary to you? I mean, we don't like thinking about, about this part of who God is or how he acts. But are you going to sit in a grotto and mourn the ashes of your lives? Is it possible that God's going to come in and pour his wrath out and wipe all this out? Is it possible? God is going to continue to pursue you if you have turned your back on him. The question is, how long will you ignore his faithful and kind call to repentance before he brings the judgment that he has promised? His his hatred of sin, his love for you, his zealousness for his holiness means he hasn't given up on you yet, but I cannot tell you how much longer he's going to be patient with you. I can't, I can't tell you Okay, so, so I've said this a few times, and I mean this. I will not beg you to come to Jesus Christ if you are not in Christ right now. I will not beg you. I will not manipulate you through some... some raise your hand. Now look at my eyes. Now come down the aisle, and then I'm not, I'm not playing the game. God, God, that makes God seem impotent. You know, God's omnipotent. I don't need to beg anybody to come to his presence. I need to tell you, the God of the universe is calling you to repent. And what he has done is he displayed for you his ultimate love by giving you his son, Jesus Christ. And right now, it's not like, I want you to think about it. No, 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 no. You just heard that Jesus Christ came to live the life you couldn't live. He died the death you should have died. He was put in the tomb, and three days later, he came out of the tomb where he now lives forever on high. What are you going to do with Jesus right now? Right now. Now, you have a choice to make right now. It's yes or no. It's, I trust in Jesus, I'm going to take his payment for my penalty, and I will come into God's presence, and God says, all right, payment is due, because the wages of sin is death. The payment is death. Payment is due, Frank. What are you giving me? Oh, man, I know. I deserve to be cast into the outer darkness. I deserve to be cast straight into the flames of hell. And so as I stand there searching my pockets like, a uh, little low on cash flow. Can I get back to you next millennium or something? I got nothing. Jesus is going to shout from across the room, Dad, that one's on me. That one's on me. Is he going to shout that for you? Or are you going to reject his payment and try to pay for it on your own? What are you going to do with Jesus right now? Many have already trusted Jesus. Many right now, it's like, I've already done that. I'm already in him. I love him. I know him. But as I look at Lamentations 1 and 2, I'm terrified. Does this mean God's going to just dump his, his wrath out in my life and take away everything that is near and dear to me? No, 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 no. Um, now, listen very clearly, though. God doesn't say you will not suffer, ever. He never says that. It's not anywhere in his word. The eternal consequences have been forever removed for you because of what Jesus Christ did for you if you are in him. Praise God for that but there's still suffering in life. And as you read Lamentations 1 and 2, friend, let me explain this to you as clearly as I possibly can. There is no condemnation in the, for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
the wrath will not be poured out in your life because Jesus Christ already drank the full cup. It is empty. He came, this is love, that God loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice. He came to be our atonement, which is, which is the act of removing something out of the way so that, so that we have clearance. He came and he removed sin from before us so that we can access God, and he was our sacrifice. That means he was our substitute. He died where we should have died. He became sin. The one who knew no sin so that we might become his righteousness. God's justice has been met. It was, sin was paid for. The forgiveness is offered to us because the atonement removes the obstacles and our relationship with God is restored. Go to chapter one, verse 12, real quick for me. I'll close it out here. Six hundred years after, roughly six hundred years after, Jeremiah sat in his grotto on the western side of Jerusalem, looking at the destruction and writing the book of Lamentations. Six hundred years later, from the eastern side of Jerusalem, walking towards and up the Mount of Olives to the top, Jesus sat on the back of a donkey. And have people shouting his name, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is that moment. And as he rounded the corner at the top of the Mount of Olives, and, and if you could be there, I would love for you to be there. We have a meeting about that next week, but I'd love you to be there. Because you can see from the town, top of the Mount of Olives, this, the valley and then Jerusalem. And in that moment, Jesus began to weep. As he saw Jerusalem and realized they have rejected the prophets and now they're going to reject me. Verse 12 of chapter 1, many think is a type of prophecy that points towards the cross. Is it nothing to you all who pass by? Uh, think about Jesus on that cross. The crowds stopping only long enough to mock him, to taunt him, to spit at him. There's nothing to them. This is just another man who's dying. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look and see. Is there any pain like mine, which was dealt out to me? Was there any pain physically like that, but so much more than physically? Was there any pain when Jesus faced the separation with his father? because the world's sin was placed upon his shoulders. Is there any pain like mine which was dealt out to me, which the Lord made me suffer on the day of his burning anger? See, on that day, Jesus Christ wasn't on the cross by mistake. Jesus Christ was there as the Father judged the sin of humanity, pouring out his wrath on his Son, and making salvation available to you and to me. And while Christ wept at the view of Jerusalem as we weep through the suffering and pain of our days, there is coming a day where there'll be no more pain and all the tears will be wiped away. And that's all because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you.
that we have that truth. Listen, with, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to do something. Um, I'm going to ask any, any staff members, any elders, any leaders who might be here, if you'd head to the back of the room. And I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to ask those of you who are here, in a moment, I'm going to finish praying, and I'm going to have you stand, and we're going to sing. But if you're here, I'm asking you the question, what are you doing with Jesus right now? You have to make a decision. You're, you're either taking him or, or rejecting him. And, and if, you, if you want to take Jesus, then I'm going to invite you to go to the back of the room and grab one of those staff members, and they'd be happy to talk with you about what it means to know Jesus Christ. Father, thanks again that we can know you. Thank you for the finished work of Christ on the cross. Thank you that our condemnation is forever removed if we are in Christ Jesus. I pray for the soul of the man or woman or young man or young woman who might be in this room right now. Lord, I pray that they would understand that this is the day of salvation. May they call out to Jesus and ask him to cover their sin forever with his shed blood. Father, I pray that you'd give them the courage, the boldness that they might need. Maybe they even grab a neighbor, somebody who's sitting next to them and walk to the back with them. Lord, would you save someone this morning? And I pray for those of us in this room who, are, who really are, we're, we're wrestling with the sin in our life. May we be quick to repent. May we run back and find the, the beautiful grace and the extended mercy that you offer to us. I thank you that, that although, although heaven's coming and it's not here yet, we have your presence to guide us until the day. May we rest and rest in Christ. I thank you for Jesus. Without him, we have nothing. It's in his precious name I pray. Amen. Would you stand where you are?